One of the things we need to remember as we study these parables of Jesus is they were designed for their simplicity. I can't tell you how many times I listen to Bible teachers make them very complex, which I don't understand. They look for esoteric or deep meanings. They try and build doctrine around it. They are not allegories. We don't look and say, okay, everybody in this parable, we have to figure out the deeper meaning. No, they were designed to turn the ear into an eye, to paint a picture that would be long-lasting about one simple spiritual truth. Let's let's go back a little bit, right? The sower, sowing in his field. Everybody in that day, and even today, I mean, you've, you've all thrown grass seed or you've planted a garden, and there would be an aha moment. Somebody would say, yeah, now I get it. Receptiveness to the word of God. He who has gets more. He who doesn't have gets little. Why? Because just like seed has to go in the good soil to produce fruit, that's the way it is when we receive the word of God and we act on it. The people who hear God's word and don't act on it, it's like the seed fell in cement. Yeah, I get it. It's simple. A couple of weeks ago, we looked at the parable of the Good Samaritan, right? Again, very simplistic understanding. It's not who is my neighbor, it's how can I be a neighbor to someone else? And the answer is I can't. I can't love people the way I want to be treated. I need the love of God in my heart. It's supernatural. So when I become a Christian, God gives me a heart of compassion for my fellow sufferers in this world, and I step out and help those in need. Religion couldn't help that that man on the road. It can't help any of us, but the spirit of the living God in human beings helps us to step out and help those in need. Now, I bring that up because the parable of the friend at midnight is one of the more difficult sayings of Jesus. On the surface, it looks a little confusing. But the simplicity of the parable is that Jesus is teaching us something about prayer. There's an aspect of prayer that he wants to drive home. The parable is bracketed by prayer. Look at chapter 11, verse 1. It says, It came to pass, as Jesus was praying in a certain place, when he ceased, that one of his disciples said, Lord, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples to pray. And then verse 11 is one of the most famous uh, words of Jesus in all the Bible uh, about asking our Heavenly Father, then that we have to ask, we have to seek, and we have to knock, right? If we ask, we'll get an answer. If we seek, we'll find. If we knock, it'll be open to us. So Jesus is very simply giving us a picture that will help us to understand something about prayer, something desirable. Now, uh, this happens to me, so I know what's happening to you right now. Whenever a pastor or a Bible teacher teaches about prayer, right away a wave of guilt comes over you. Anybody feel that already? Like right away, oh my gosh, I haven't prayed all week. I, haven't, I don't pray with power. I don't pray enough. Uh, uh, and there's just this insane amount of guilt. Do you realize in the Bible, whenever Jesus talked about prayer, it was never that way? In fact, Jesus often talked about prayer, or he lived in such a way where there was this grand invitation, this desire to pray. Chapter 11, verse 1, Lord, teach us to pray as John's disciples taught him to pray. Now, John was a man of God. He was a man's man. John wanted nothing to do with pharisaical religion. You know, praying on the street corners, praying long prayers. You know, we've all had enough of that, right? 21 years I heard men praying, and I never went up to them and said, oh my gosh, your life is so desirable. Can you teach me how to pray? In fact, uh, I was the opposite. I'm like, let me look for another religion, because this doesn't look desirable. But there was something about Jesus. And by the way, Jesus wasn't praying with them. He was leaving in the morning. He was going at nighttime. 
And they saw something in him like they saw in John, and they're like, teach us to pray this way. There's, there's something desirable about your life. And Jesus didn't put him on a guilt trip. He said, when you pray, pray like this. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, and so on. Luke gives us a condensed version of what Matthew gives us. And what Jesus was doing here was opening up this grand invitation of prayer. David Gooding put it this way. He said, human beings, we are not mere cogs mindlessly revolving in some impersonal mechanistic universe. We are persons created by a personal God, made capable of holding conversation with him. Next to the wonder of being willing to talk to him, to us, is the inexpressible honor of our being allowed to talk to him. And by asking him for gifts, which he is pleased to give, to develop that personal relationship between ourselves and him, listen to this, which is the chief goal of creation, to enjoy God, to serve him together. God wants to walk with us as he walked with Adam in the garden. When I became a Christian, I was blown away that God would speak. Because in the religion I grew up in, God was running the universe. He couldn't be known, at least by an individual. And then as I began to walk with God, I learned that God speaks, that I could hear his voice. He spoke through his word. He would speak through other people. I'd be listening to the radio. and That would minister to me. I'd see signs. And all of a sudden, I had this relationship with God where Hebrews 11 says, in the past, God spoke to the fathers through the prophets. Now he was speaking in his son. And I thought, this is way cool. And then there's that second step David Gooding talks about where we can talk to him. Do you ever get to a place in life where you can't talk to anyone? You know, you just can't, you know, you you can't talk to anyone anymore because they they don't want to hear your problems. Or like, go figure it out on your own or no one understands. And the beauty of prayer is you get alone with God and you speak to God and he's the only one that understands. And we've ruined this. We've ruined it because of religiosity. We've brought religiosity into our freedom with Christ. And I know we have because I do it and you do it. We think prayer, or at least God hearing us, has to do with the building. Oh, if I can only pray at Calvary Chapel or this great cathedral where, you know, I feel peace. The only reason you feel peace is the cathedral was built to make you feel peace. High ceilings, marble, stained glass windows, candles lit. You know, it gives you that feeling. Uh, Every time we go to Israel, our people turn religious at the Wailing Wall. The Wailing Wall is the closest point to where the Holy of Holies was. And the Jews, they write their prayer requests and they stick them on the wall and then they, you ever see them bob up and down there? So when our people get there, here we are with all this freedom, we love God, we know God, all of a sudden, instead of just going to the wailing wall, it's okay to offer up a prayer, but our people really start to believe that they're closer to God there. And I'm like, guys, I want to tell you, this is a beautiful place and I love it too, but you can go to the Sears at Granite Run Mall and your prayers are just as heard as they are right here. And then the other place they turn religious is at the Jordan Baptismal site where they buy the little dollar vial to scoop up the water as if it's more holy than other water. But that's another point. Uh, The point here is, I heard a pastor say this, his prayer closet is his car. He said, Bob, when I get in my car, I don't put music on, I just sit there It's me and God. There's no kids interrupting, uh, no cell phone. It's just me and God. Jesus went off to pray, and he gives us this grand invitation, and he begins like this, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. 
He opens this door to not a master of the universe. He doesn't say our king who's in heaven or, or our majesty. He said our father who art in heaven. Now the Jews had some understanding of God as a father, but Jesus used an Aramaic word, Abba, which is what a little kid would say, one of his first words, Dada. So it's one thing for God to be your father, but what about God being your dad? Just sounds strange, right? Jesus opened it up. He goes, look, you want to pray? God's your dad. Wow. No guilt there. Who wouldn't want to talk to their dad? Now some of you are saying, wait a second, this dad illustration doesn't work for me. Look down at verse 11. Jesus said, if a son asks for bread from any father among you, will he give him a stone? The idea is no. Or if he asks for a fish, will he give him a serpent? No. Or if he asks for an egg, will he give him a scorpion? No. But you're saying, man, I asked my dad for bread. Dad, I need tuition money. You got any bread? And he gave you a stone. And you asked your dad for a fish, and he gave you a serpent. My dad did too. My dad was an out. My stepdad was an alcoholic. He would make me grand promises at night when he was drinking, and in the morning he forgot them all. We never had a family vacation because he spent all his money drinking. And it's not boo-hoo, and I don't have daddy issues, and neither do you. And I'm telling you the truth right now. We get this illustration. I don't care who your dad was. Number one, you're a new creation in Christ. All things have passed. They're all new. Yes, there is still issues you're dealing with. I get it. I went through it too. But the day I received Christ, there was this sense that I now had a father in heaven. There was also a reality and understanding, and I think this is a big part of forgiveness, that my mom and dad did the best they could without Christ. They didn't have Christ. And and I began to hear stories about how they were raised. You know, my stepfather was one of ten children. He had to share a winter coat with his brother. And it was filled with holes and all. And so he would put it, hide it in the hedge when he went to high school so no one would see that he didn't have a nice winter coat. And I began to have compassion for the way they were raised. And then finally, and no one can talk me out of this, though I didn't have the perfect dad, I knew what a dad looked like and should have been. I saw some of my friends' dads, and I said, that's what a dad is. And then I grew up in an era with a Brady Bunch, and Happy Days was on, and for you younger folks, you've probably seen it on TV land, but I knew a dad was like Mr. Brady, that when you had a problem, he was supposed to come in your room, sit on your bed, and talk you through it, okay? You know, my dad was chasing me with stuff most of the time, not sitting on my bed. But I knew that Mr. Brady and Mr. Cunningham were the dads we all should have had. Jesus went on to say in verse 13, if you then, being evil, these good dads, these Mr. Brady's, they're evil in comparison to God. And see, what you start to pick up is this is a parable of contrast. It's not a difficult parable. It's just a parable of contrast. How much more does God want to give you the Holy Spirit to those who ask? Uh, The sister parable of This is Luke chapter 18, where there's a widow who goes into an unjust judge and she keeps hounding him, avenge me of my adversary, avenge me of my adversary. You ever have someone like that in your life? And you finally just do what they ask to get rid of them. And we think, well, that's a head scratcher. That's like this parable. It doesn't make any sense. Is that really the character of God? And the answer is no. It's a parable of contrast. God's not like the unjust judge. He's not like the friend at midnight who's just going to give you what you need to get rid of you. But he's your father in heaven. And he loves you. 
I want to say one other thing about this because we're starting to live in a gender neutrality, a gender confusion in our day. And people say, well, Pastor Bob, that sounds really chauvinistic that God's our father. Isn't God a spirit? He's neither father nor mother. And I don't think any Christians have a problem with this, but it's kind of even moved into our translation. Some of these translations now are saying in this model prayer, our father slash mother in heaven to become you know, gender neutral. Can I tell you that Jesus came to reveal the Father? Read the Gospel of John. I don't want to give you all the verses. He came to reveal the Father. The Trinity is the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. And do you know why he revealed the Father to us? Because that's what we need. We need dads. We need strong fathers. You know all the statistics in the inner city. Now it's in the suburbs. When the dad's missing, what happens to a society and how many people are incarcerated? We need dads, we need father figures, and Jesus came to reveal the Father. Now, it's not chauvinistic. In Isaiah, God said he's cared for us with the loving concern of a mother. Paul said to the early church, you know, like, like a nursing mother, I've cared for you. But the deep truth of Scripture, and if you believe Scripture that every word's inspired, is that God is our Heavenly Father. Now, with that information, we look at the parable, right? So we've got this guy. He has a friend that comes in at midnight. There's no buses, trains. There's no schedules. You just arrive when you arrived. And these people come at midnight, which, by the way, is the middle of the night for a society with no electricity. If you came to my house at midnight, I'm probably watching SportsCenter. I'm up, and I'll give you something to eat. In that day, they had been asleep for hours, And this guy has no food, so he goes to his friend, he knocks on the door. The guy's like, are you kidding me? I'm in this bed with my kids. You know, they had a one-bedroom house, and they would sleep with their kids. And he's like, you know what? Okay, just because you're bothering me, here's the food, not because you're my friend. And we look at this, and we think, well, is this the character of God? That we beg him, and he's just going to get rid of us? And again, the answer is no. It's a parable of contrast. Look down at verse 8. Verse 8 unlocks the parable where it says he will give him, not because he's his friend, but because of his persistence. What this parable is teaching us is the simple truth of persistence in prayer. Now the word persistence is only used one other time, and it's in Luke 18, the parable of the unjust judge. The English word persistence comes from the Greek, anadiei. The old King James uses the word importunity. It means to be rude, to be bold. Uh, The greatest translation is that we should be shameless in our approach to God. Now you're probably thinking rude, bold, shameless. Those are all bad character traits. Well, let's go back to the illustration of a father. You know, we could be in my living room having the deepest conversation among adults, and if my granddaughter comes in and announces she needs apple juice, three people get up and go get it for her. Okay? You know, there's one contingency of people on earth that get what they want, and it's little kids. All right? So if God is our Father, that's His willingness. I couldn't believe it on her birthday. She wanted one gift, and now in the email age, everybody's emailing, I've been to this store, I've been to this store. Go online, you can get it here. This little five-year-old has people maneuvering all over Delaware County. (laughs) And Jesus said, that's what your father's like. That's what your father in heaven's like. Let's say you had a proposal for President Obama, and you worked your way up where you got an invitation to the White House. 
Uh, you would go there, you'd be dressed formally, you'd give him your, you know, your proposal, and he'd listen to you. Right in the middle of it, if one of his daughters walked in and said, Dad, I need 15 bucks, he'd probably stop and give it to them. And then he'd reprimand them, look, you can't just barge in the Oval Office. I do it here when I counsel people. My kids will barge in, Dad, I need, I'm going to Starbucks, I need 10 bucks. I'm like, you can't come in here, I'm counseling people, this is life and death, but here's 10 bucks. You know, like, it's just the way it goes. Ask, and you shall receive. Seek, and you shall find. Not, you've heard this your whole life. Asking is a peculiar thing. It's in the present imperative that says keep asking, keep seeking, keep knocking. I got saved in something called the Word of Faith movement, where you were taught to have great faith. And we were taught that if you prayed twice, you lacked faith. That if you had faith, you only had to pray once. But then I read about Paul's thorn in the flesh where he prayed three times that it would leave. I'm thinking, well, if Paul could pray three times, I guess I could pray three times. I mean, he had more faith than I have. It's ridiculous. Jesus said, keep asking, keep seeking, keep knocking. Do you ever notice in life that the people who ask get? It's where we got that saying that the squeaky wheel gets all the grease. Huh? James says you have not because you ask not. You think that's humility. Well, I'm not going to ask God. He knows what I need. No, he wants you to ask. That's false humility. We're adding a phase two extension to our campus here. It's going to cost about $1.5 million. And we've been faithful, stewards, diligent. We've prayed. We think we're honoring God. Five years ago, we built a house for our family. Our family's grown, and we have to add an extension on. And what I found out is that over the years, people that love to give, and that's most of us, just want to know what the need is. Just explain the need, give us the detail, give us the time frame, and we love to pray about it and give. People with the gift of giving tell me all the time, we want to know what you're trying to do because God's given us the gift to finance that. I know pastors who think if they don't ask, that's faith. In other words, if I don't ask and we build a building, then that's really God. No, the scripture says you don't. You have not because you ask not. I took a group of men to Colorado in our men's group Several years ago, there was 20 of us. And, uh, you know, I used to fly Southwest because I thought it was cheap, and then I found out it's not cheaper than any other airline. And it's really the cattle car of the skies, right? Uh, if you're in the last zone, you board, and all the middle seats are empty, right? So we had a group rate, and I let all the guys get on first, made sure everybody was on, and I got on last, and I got on, and there they were, all the center seats. But when I got on, there was an elderly woman in the bulkhead, which has the most leg room, most desirable seat. And I said, ma'am, is your husband in the men's room? She goes, no, nobody took this seat. Boom, I was in. Now, all the guys ribbed me when we got there. Oh, yeah, the pastor gets all the perks. You're in the front seat. I said, guys, you, everybody on the plane could have asked. True story. On the way back, I get on last. Elderly lady in the bulkhead. Ma'am, is your husband in the restroom? No. Boom. All the guys ribbed me. I'm like, you could have asked. Sometimes if you go out to eat with me, um, towards the end of the meal, especially if there's ladies there, uh, I'll notice they haven't finished their meal. Now, somebody corrected me in the first service. The first service I said, I will wait and I'll gently ask, are you done with that? To which I will then scarf up their food. And somebody came up to me who knows me well and says, Bob, you, you, you lied. You didn't tell the truth. 
you don't even ask. <laughs> now, some people would say, well, you're a mooch. That's rude, right? Like when I go camping, you know, I always forget something. I, I'm so proud of myself. I've just hitched up my whole house to my vehicle, and we're going away to get into nature. And uh, lo and behold, I forgot coffee. I forgot half and half. I forgot wood. I forgot something. And I just go shamelessly because campers are the most benevolent people on earth. But you have to ask. How many of us in our relationship with God approach God as if he can't be asked? Paul Yonggi Cho, who I think has the biggest church in the world, when he was a younger pastor, I remember reading his book. And he said he needed a bicycle to preach the gospel in South Korea. And he would actually say, God, I want a Schwinn 10-speed that's green with certain handlebars. And it wasn't because he was lustful or demanding. He said he wanted to know when the bike came that it came from God. Now, I don't know if that's theologically correct, and I don't know if we should put fleeces out like that before God, but I thought that was way cool. Can you imagine the heart of God to be moved like that? And then the Bible says you should seek, because if you seek, you'll find uh, we call seekers people that are looking for God. I think we're all seekers. I think the saddest thing is to stop seeking, to think you've arrived, to that you know it all. You know, I feel like I'm still on this grand adventure. I'll get on a plane, I'll fly red eyes, I'll go wherever God's moving, I'll read anything that's out there, not because I'm looking for deeper knowledge. I just want to have the fullness of God's kingdom. I want to experience everything there is. I want to seek until the day I die. I want to explore. You know, I, I even think that scripture in James, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing it's working out perseverance and it's building your faith. I think sometimes what God is saying, hey, here's part of the journey. This is part of the journey. Like the God of the universe came down and suffered. Wow. Isn't that cool? The plight of man has been suffering, so of course he came down and suffered. And sometimes I think, well, if I can just go here, if I can just go there and experience God. God said, no, just stay here and go through this trial, and you'll learn more about me. But then here's the one that got me this week. Knock, and it shall be open. Do you ever have anybody knock on your door like this? You know, if I heard that, I would think like a bird hit the window or something. How do you knock on a door... When you've got an urgent need. Boom, 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 right? Anybody in there? Can, you know, I'm going to crowbar this thing open. That's how David approached God. God, where are you when I need you? The wicked are prospering. The righteous are suffering, God. God, are you going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah, Abraham? The woman clinging onto his garment wasn't timid. The opposite of shamelessness is timidity. Oh, dear Heavenly Father, you know what I need. And I'm not putting that down. But if this is really a relationship, we've got, we can be real with God. Abraham was real with God. God, you're going to destroy the righteous with the wicked? God, if there's 50 righteous, you're going to destroy them? God said no. 45, 40, 35, 30, 20. I mean, he just went at it with God shamelessly. Jacob takes the cake. The angel of the Lord, which is Jesus Christ in the Old Testament, he wrestles with them all night. The angel puts his hip out of joint, and Jacob says, I'm not letting you go till you'll bless me. Now, I don't have any idea what this looked like. 
You ever wrestle with God like that? Wrestle with God. And the scripture says, for you have struggled with God and man, and you've prevailed, and your name will be turned from Jacob to Israel. Prince with God. God would much rather have you wrestle with him than just be indifferent towards him. You might be thinking, well, Abraham asked and he didn't get what he wanted. Yeah, neither will you. And the reason we don't get what we want, because a lot of times we're asking for a serpent, but we think it's a fish. A lot of times we're asking for a stone, but we think it's bread. And just like the illustration of my granddaughter coming in and demanding apple juice, and everybody will jump, if she came in and demanded five Reese's peanut butter cups, no one would have moved. See? And you're thinking, well, how can I be shameless? How can I be bold with God and know that I'm asking the right thing? Well, James says you have not because you ask not because you ask amiss to spend it on your own lust. That's one. But you know what I think unlocks this, this model prayer? Jesus said when you pray, pray this, our Father who art in heaven. You know, most of the time that settles the equation for me. Oh, yeah, God, I forgot. You're in heaven, I'm on earth. Yeah, I forgot. Your ways are higher than my ways. Yeah, I forgot. You're infinite and eternal. I'm finite. And then it's thy kingdom come, thy will be done. In other words, the prayer starts out with God's intentions, and then at the end it's my daily bread, my forgiveness, etc. Once a year we go uh, away, about 30 Calvary Chapel pastors, just to pray. And the first day we go around the room and we write our prayer request. And it's usually... We need a worship leader, we need a building, we need this, we need that. By the third day, it's, I need to be a better husband. I need to be a better father. I need to be less angry. I need the joy of the Lord. See, the model prayer breaks us down there where we say, you know what, God? My needs are trivial. They're they're first world problems. But we can shamelessly go with God when we know we're aligned with his will. When we're seeking first the kingdom, God, you know, the inner cities are falling apart. God, give us manna from heaven. Give us some idea how to reach people in this generation. Lord, we know what Barna is saying. We know what all the statistics are. God, what are you speaking in this day? And then he gives us what we need. He gives us what we want. You can ask for that 10-speed bike. But sometimes the answer is going to be no. I remember David when he was praying for his son who was dying. He was in sackcloth and ashes. And as soon as his son died, he jumped up and he said, hey, somebody make me something to eat. And everybody startled like, David, you were just praying one minute ago. Now what's going on? He said, well, as long as the child was alive, I pray. But now that he's gone, I accept what God has declared. And I think, well, what, a, what a way to live. Like, sometimes we're knocking on the door. God, save my 89-year-old grandfather. Don't let him die. God's saying, are you kidding? He's going to be in heaven. You want them to keep living here on earth? There's just some things we don't know, and we can't judge God that way, no matter how much we pound on the door. The greatest pounding you'll ever do is in the book of Revelation, where it says that God is pounding on the door. And if you open the door, he'll come in and dine with you. He's pounding, love taps, every day. 
what you're feeling inside, if you're not a believer, what you're feeling inside that there's no purpose to this life and, and I can't find joy or peace, that's God knocking. And when you watch TV shows or if you hear the gospel, and even here today, the Holy Spirit, that's him knocking. That's the greatest knocking that will ever happen. I believe God heals. I, I believe we should pray for the sick. I believe we should anoint them. But there's just some times where God's answer is different. You know, I went through this prayer and I vowed to be more shameless this week in my praying. More bold, more rude, more real with God. For too long I thought, well God, you own the cattle on the thousand hills and and, and you can do whatever you want so you know what my needs are. And I vowed to be more focused, more intentional. God, from my perspective, here's what I need. And you know what it comes down to? It comes down to confidence. My kids can ask from me because they have confidence. They know my character. They know my love for them. And that's what it comes down to. If you have confidence in God, if, if you believe the scriptures, your boldness is because of your confidence. And your confidence is because all that he's already done. Now, there's one thing we have to end on, and I chuckle every time I read it because I think of Gail Irwin. He says, if you being evil, verse 13, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask of him? And if you remember Gail, Gail goes, how much more will he give the Holy Spirit? And Gail does that because we're usually praying for something else. God, I need a Mercedes, and here's the serial number, and here's the dealer. And God, I want this and I want that. The Holy Spirit. (laughs) But you know what the truth is? The Holy Spirit's probably what we need. Isn't it? I received the Holy Spirit in 1983. I got saved on a Friday night. I walked up on an altar call that Sunday morning. Guy comes up to me and says, you want to receive the Spirit? Showed me four verses prayed over me. I began speaking in tongues. I still do to this day. I was caught up in this weird theology where that was the second blessing or the proof that you were saved and yada, yada, yada. But it was, a, it was an amazing experience and I still speak in tongues and I still feel the Holy Spirit. And then I read the book of Acts and I realized there's not one filling. There's constant fillings of the Holy Spirit. If you want to read one good book on the Holy Spirit, read R.A. Torrey. I think we have a couple copies out there. But these many fillings of the Spirit, we need them for every season of life, everything we're going through. And God will take you on, on wings like an eagle through these times. And, and I thought, yeah, that's it. We need the Holy Spirit. See, I think I need tangible things. I think I need answers to certain prayers. I need people... You know, I'm judging God by, by things I can see. And then I realize, wait a second, the Holy Spirit brings joy, peace, long-suffering, goodness. Oh my gosh. Yeah, I need the Holy Spirit. How come I never pray that prayer? Why, because he indwells me? Yeah, but you know, we're, we're theologically splitting hairs. God, may your Holy Spirit come down upon me. You know why? Because this world's out of control. And I just watched the news, and I shouldn't have watched the news because somebody got run over by a bus, and ISIS is killing people, and I don't even know how to start my day. God, give me your Holy Spirit and help me walk through this day. Guys, this isn't about prayer. This is about one simple aspect of prayer, being shameless in your approach to your dad. Don't look at anything deeper in the parable. That's all it is.
He's not the unjust judge. He's not the friend at midnight. He's the God that wants to open the windows of heaven and pour out such a blessing that you won't have room to receive it. Every theologian, every Bible teacher of every school that's ever existed agrees. If we disagree on a thousand things, this is the one thing we all agree on, that God wants to be sought. Christensen said that the just man does not, desire, does not desist from praying until he ceases to be just. Augustine said, he that loveth little prayeth little, and that he that loveth much prayeth much. Richard Hooker said, prayer is the first thing whereas a righteous life begins and the last where it does end. One man said, he who has a pure heart will never cease to pray and he will be constant in prayer, shall, not, shall know what it is like to have a pure heart. Bunyan said, if, there, if you are not a praying person, you are not a Christian. Baxter said, prayer is the breath of the new creature. And George Herbert said, prayer is the soul's blood. How many of us prayed this, our Father, and had no idea what we were praying. How many of us prayed as unbelievers? Our Father who art in heaven, I'll be in the name of the kingdom. Yeah, I, mean, I prayed it all my life. Had no flipping idea what it meant. And now I look at it and say, oh my gosh. The God who seems so far away running the universe is my dad. And you can ponder that for the ages to come. That's who Jesus came to reveal. And religions turned it upside down. And we've put men on pedestals and we've, and, we, and we've turned it all into religion. We get back to this simple truth. Life's difficult. No one skates through. We're all walking with a limp like Jacob. But we have a Father in heaven who has your best intention at hand. And he proved it by sending his son to the cross that he who died for us, that we might live. Father in heaven, we thank you for this grand invitation to speak with you, to commune with you. Lord, I pray this coming week, and I pray for everyone here, that we would be more bold, more shameless in our prayers, that we would interrupt the God of the heavens. Because, Lord, we're desperate. We're clinging to the hem of his garment. Lord, we've been left dry by every other cistern, every other well. Only you have the living water. Peter said, only you have the words of eternal life. And Lord, I pray we would never turn to another. We would never turn to our own ways. That we would boldly ask you for what we need and have the assurance that you've heard us. In Jesus' name, amen. Can we stand together?